While they're doing that, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you brought one with you, to uh, Acts 17. And if you'll put a finger there, that's going to be kind of our intro. And then over to 1 Thessalonians. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time today. But I want you to see this in Acts 2. Um, in Acts 17 as well, um, to kind of bring this story together. Um, for the, some of you who are just kind of getting back from the summer routine, uh, welcome back. There's been some exciting things that have happened this summer. Um, at the end of June, we uh, sent out our Shreveport Church, uh, Weston, who uh, is leading them. They'll meet tonight at 5 o'clock, so if you know some Shreveporters that are looking for a place to belong, please um, connect with them. They meet at our downtown uh, Center City location. Um, and keep praying for them. God's doing some cool things there in the Shreveport, uh, the Shreveport uh, Covenant Shreveport. Also, I uh, bring greetings from Stephen Partain. We sent him out a year ago, you might remember, to New Orleans. A group of us went down uh, Thursday and Friday, came back yesterday to do kind of a survey of where they are. And I just want to give just a little report. Um, it's one of those incredibly cool God things. So we sent Stephen down there uh, in the middle of New Orleans, and uh, we partnered with another church down there called Canal Street. And Stephen's been kind of cultivating relationships and doing ministry to his neighbors and started a Bible study in his home, that kind of thing, and has seen God do some incredible things. And then just about two months ago, this historic church called Grace Baptist uh, is shutting their doors, basically, and they wanted to give this property to someone, and it ended up giving it to Stephen, um, which is like the most bizarre thing. Uh, and it's in the upper ninth ward, so the lower ninth is probably what you've seen on TV that flooded so bad in Katrina. This is over the bridge in the upper ninth ward, and they're re, kind of revitalizing this area, like literally... 15 foot out, out of Stephen's back door where he's living in the parsonage there. Oh, I didn't tell you, it came with a free house. Two free houses, actually. Um, out his back door, uh, they're building these, uh, you know, these condos, high-rise condos, uh, upscale. And it was just incredible. Like, the culture of the world is at his footstep. It really is. We met some of those people. Stephen, every time I leave, I'm like, man, God, you'd have to do a serious call to get me into this city. I do not want to go here. Stephen fits right in. Um, y'all pray for Stephen and Morgan and what they're doing. They're in the coming uh, months just cultivating relationships. There's two uh, high schools, two charter schools within a block and a half from him, probably, of about 2,000 people apiece. Um, that's how kind of those schools work in charter schools. So just, it's just unbelievable, um, the doors that God has opened. And Stephen needs a lot of help. And so we want to probably send groups down every month or every other month for the coming uh, foreseeable future to help him get that space ready. You'll pray for uh, Stephen and Morgan and what they're doing. Um, let's just jump right in. Let me say a quick prayer for us. God, would you move in our hearts in such a way that we would see your gospel and its beauty, bring conviction, bring encouragement. Jesus, as we lift you up, would you draw men into yourselves? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You've heard this before, but I want to remind you that we've been called to make disciples. Everyone in this room who calls God their Father and Jesus their Savior, the call on us is to go and make disciples. Every one of us, from the newest baby Christian in this room to the oldest saint that might be at death's door, the call on us is to make disciples. It was the singular clarion call that Jesus gave us in the Great Commission. Hey, as you do life, make disciples. 
And I want that command to reverberate through our minds and our hearts all the time. Because no matter what sort of occupation we have, we should do a great job and to the best of our ability, working as unto the Lord, but we are there to make disciples. And in the neighborhoods in which we live, we should be good neighbors, we should bring life to the neighborhood that we're in, but we are there not just to be neighborly, but to make disciples. That is the call of God on our life. The question is, how are we doing that? And who are we making disciples of? I love this practice as I've spoken to some of our missionaries that they have an Eastern culture where they literally make a disciple tree and they kind of trace their line. Have I made a disciple of him and he made a disciple of her and she went out and made disciples and they kind of own their downline, so to speak, and they stay in touch with these people and they nurture these relationships so that they would grow up in maturity. But I grew up in the church growth era. And a lot of good things came from the church growth era, but a lot of unhealthy things did as well. Namely, the focus shifted, I believe, from making disciples to growing the local church. And the two are not synonymous. The two do not go hand in hand. They're not the same thing. In our culture in the West, especially in the South, we've grown a lot of big churches. Many of them, though, are empty today. But even in the places where we have big churches, we've rarely impacted the cities we lived in with the gospel. The goal for us is not to grow a great church. I don't wake, I don't, I don't stay awake at night dreaming about how big we can make this place. That's just not the goal. The goal is to see disciples made. And then those disciples scattered all over the earth, making disciples and pointing people to the glory of God and all the things that they do. That's why I love spending some time with Stephen. That's why, I, that's why we sent you know, 50 or 60 people over to Shreveport so they could start their thing. And, and I pray that God lets us plant 100 churches in the next 10 years. I would love to see a move of God in such a way that, that we are owning the spiritual condition of our neighborhoods, even as Jason talked about last week. James warns us, To not merely listen to the word, but to do what it says. I feel like in today's culture, we have thousands of phenomenal podcasts at our fingertips. We can listen to the best teachers on the planet. And I encourage you to do that because there's some phenomenal teaching out there. But if that doesn't move us to mission, then what good is it? Somehow we have to move from podcasts, right, to accomplishing our purpose of making disciples. And I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2. But before that, I'm going to kind of paint the picture context in Acts 17. Thessalonians is a book, of course, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica because he was forced out. Here's the story of kind of how the church got started, Acts uh, 17. And this isn't on the screen, so if you have a device or, or uh, you're old school like me and have the actual pages, um, flip over Acts 17. Paul and Silas are on their missionary journey. It says, they came to Thessalonica, verse 1 where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, but not a few, and not a few of the leading women, that's Yoda speak for a lot of women, also joined the group. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, 
seeking to bring them out to the crowds. When they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority shouting, these men who... These men who have turned the world upside down, I just love that phrase, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason they, and the rest, they let them go. Flip over, First Thessalonians. So Paul is forced out. He sends Silas and some of his other leaders, Timothy at one point, back to um, Thessalonica to help pastor this young, young church that had been birthed there. Paul planted this church, and I want to see what it looks like. A church that receives the gospel, that implements the gospel, that is radically changed by the gospel, and as doing so, they change the culture in which they live. Let's start in verse... Four of First Thessalonians. Again, Paul writing to the young church, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord and you received the word with much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is just this incredible. I, I've been in First uh, Thessalonians 1 and 2 for like a month now. And I just keep reading it. And I just can't move past it. I'm a terrible guy with those Bible reading plans. Because I just, I get to a passage like this. That is so pregnant with meaning. And so many just phrases of uh, just powerful phrases that bring such conviction and such restoration, I think, to my weary soul sometimes. And I think we see a few things here that, that I would like us to strive to be this kind of church, the Thessalonians, that we would strive to be, have this kind of character that Paul and Silas had as they took the gospel there and suffered much for it. Few, I think, truths that we can apply here as the, gospel moves through a city. First, we see that people are radically changed. People are radically changed, not just touched, but radically changed. Let me remind you a few of those in verse 6. It says, and you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the Lord with much, much affliction. See, these people were radically changed, and we know that because of their perseverance through suffering. Anybody can claim the banner of Jesus Christ when it costs them nothing, when they don't alter their lives at all, their character aren't changing, but these things are putting, these people are putting through the, are being put through the crucible of, uh, of suffering, and, and they are persevering in the word, that they receive the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that, to the extent that they became an example to all the believers, their perseverance through suffering, 
They had true repentance that led to new life. It says in verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And I don't have time to unpack this context, but this was in these uh, Eastern communities, much like some of the people that we're trying to reach today in Southeast Asia, that, that uh, if they were to turn from idols, the way that they had worshipped and their ancestors had worshipped all their life, it meant that they would have been pushed out of their community. They couldn't find work, they couldn't find food. It cost them so much to turn from this to that. Reminds me of the parable of Jesus and as, as he speaks about the treasure hidden in the field that with joy the man sold everything he had so that he could have this one thing, this priceless gift. They turn, their, their life just radically changed. True repentance leads to this new kind of life. Another way that we know that these people were radically changed that they have a life that imitates the word of God. Look over in chapter 2, probably on the same page, maybe in verse 13. It says, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. The word of God is so much more than a history lesson. It's so much more than just an account of what God did with saints in the past. It's, Hebrews says that it's living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. Able to divide even in you the difference between your soul and your spirit. Explain that. Where those two interchange, I don't know. But it says the word of God does. And he begins with exact precision to carve out the sin in your life. And to infuse it with this new heart. These people are radically changed. I say radically changed, not just touched. We live in a Bible Belt culture, right? Where many people are touched by the gospel, but they're not radically changed by the gospel. For years, I was a youth pastor and uh, just down the road, and we would have uh, an event on Tuesday nights, and we would draw hundreds and hundreds of kids. A lot of good things happen in that, but a lot of bad things too, because I was trying to grow a youth ministry, not make disciples. And I look back today with my heart broken as many of those people have just left the faith. People are changed, not just touched. In 1990, a Gallup poll showed a record of 75, 74, excuse me, percent of U.S. adults over 18. This is a, a of all, uh, survey of all of the United States. 74% adults over 18 claim to have made a commitment to Christ. And when that news came out, all the pastors in America cheered, right? They saw it as a great thing. A possible forefront for a national revival. Here we are some 30 years later and we know that the national revival did not take place. If anything, in the long run, all we did was inoculate an entire culture with Christianese things. They were touched but not radically changed. They were impacted but there was no repentance. Real discipleship starts with people encountering the grace of Jesus in such a way that it begins to radically change them. Can I ask that of you and of me? Are we being radically changed by the gospel to such an extent that it just shifts our whole paradigm? 
how we, how we steward our time and how we steward our money and how we steward our resources, that everything changes because we don't live for ourselves anymore. But we put Jesus at the center of all things and our life now orbits around him and his commandment to us is to go and to make disciples. Prayerfully, you've been changed by this great disruptor of the grace of God. As people are changed, just the natural overflow of that is evangelism. It's kind of the second thought here is evangelism, evangelism is, should be natural. It's supposed to be natural, not contrived. Again, in the church growth era, and maybe some good practices came to this, but we would try to bring people to the church so that we could get them excited again to go out and, and to evangelize. And we would go and knock on doors and my dad started several churches this way and some great things did come from it. But what I think it did is it kind of divorced, it kind of provided the sectarian view of, of how evangelism is supposed to be a natural overflow of all of our lives. Our speech should be salty, as Colossians says. Everywhere we go, it should just be a natural overflow as we're walking with Jesus and our joy is in Jesus. As we're near to him, we have peace that surpasses understanding that that should just overflow with us speaking the gospel and demonstrating the gospel where we live, work, and play. It should be the natural overflow evangelism should. How did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome in just a few decades and then a few centuries later be such an attractive option that it was made the world religion? It's because these people, these Thessalonians and others like them, this was no game for them. They were radically changed and evangelism was just a natural overflow of their life. It doesn't take much time for me to spend with you to find out what you're most passionate about. We are all evangelists of the things that we love the most, of the things that we find most glorious. Even as Jason said earlier in the welcome, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you're not spending time at the feet of Jesus, then evangelism is going to be forced or inauthentic at best. It's a bother and a chore, and for many, this is how we've done church for so long. The church has become a ghetto of sorts, where our entire lives revolve around the activities on some church campus. That is not how the gospel worked in the New Testament. No, it worked through the lives of the believers. And yes, they did meet together, and we should meet together, and they did encourage each other, and we should encourage each other. And they came together to sing songs and spiritual songs and to take communion and pray for each other and have the public reading of Scripture. Absolutely, I'm not diminishing any of those things. But church in the West now is a spectator sport where we come in and we say, okay, pastor, okay, staff, I demand that you bless me in some way, but that is not the essence of the gospel. It is ra people radically changed by the gospel. Their paradigm shifted, and those people changed the world. Isn't that what they said of the disciples of Jesus? <laughs> Who are these untrained men that are speaking with such power and authority? Look at how the gospel spread here in Thessalonica. Again in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word of much affliction. I love this too. You might underline this in your Bibles if you have one or highlight it. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers. Macedonia and Achaia, those were the surrounding kind of states, so to speak, of where they were. But keep going in verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in those places, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. That's unbelievable. Paul's saying, everywhere I go, I hear people talking about the Lord. And I say, well, where'd you hear about this good news of Jesus? He said, oh, those people from Thessalonica. They just can't quit talking about it. It's just such a radical change in their own lives that they just could not shut up about it. Have you heard about the joy that's in Jesus? Have you heard about this great disruptor of grace that you don't have to earn acceptance to God anymore? You don't have to sacrifice to these false gods and these false idols. You don't have to do that anymore. As a matter of fact, even I love how this grace disruptor like speaks to both the Pharisee and speaks to uh, the immoral that's running from God. You remember the parable uh, of, of the good... of. In Luke 15, of the lost sons, the prodigal son, how you have the one Pharisee, the older brother, who's demanding his way because he had done what's right, and you have the younger brother who's, you think in the story is the prodigal, as he's run away from home to do whatever glandular living that he wanted to do, and how the grace of God is put forth from the heart of the Father in that story. And I love how that grace is the great disruptor in our lives. Think about how you came to Christ. Was it the wrath of God that scared you into being part of him? No, it was the kindness of God. It was the grace of God. You mean I don't have to earn my salvation? I don't have to feverishly work for it anymore? Or for the prodigal that had run away? You mean that God forgives everything? Absolutely he does. The grace of God, this great disruptor, had radically changed these people. And the church must train believers to live successfully. Successfully as Christ's followers means not only to follow his teaching, but his example. To live, as we talked about last week, an oikocentric life. Oikos meaning your extended household over and over in scripture, all through the book of Acts, we have this illustration of people being saved and they went and they reached their household, which meant You know, their extended family, the people that they did life with, the people that they lived close to them. We see it modeled in the way of Jesus, that he poured his life into 12 men, preparing them to change the world. We see it in the life of Paul as he poured his life into about 15 guys who changed the world. They planted and pastored these churches, people like Titus and Timothy and Silas and Barnabas. Read through the letters of Paul when he gets to the ends of them. He always says these weird things. He's greeting his disciples. Hey, tell Tychicus I said hello. Uh, greet, greet this guy with a warm kiss. He's done much for the kingdom. Send, send Luke and Timothy to me because I need them. He's investing into his oikos and making disciples of them. Again, this word oikos from scripture, the Greek word that means extended household, I think I have this on a slide. It's the most natural and common environment for evangelism to occur. A group of eight to 15 people with whom you share life most closely is your sphere of greatest influence. These are the people that you've been sent to. And sometimes God moves in your heart and You move across town and you develop a new oikos. And sometimes he moves in your heart and you move to New Orleans or you move to Shreveport to to bring the gospel to these places and, and you do life with these people. 
Certainly it's your immediate family that lives with you, but even more than that. In his book, 8 to 15, Tom Mercer says, Our households continue to be the arenas where our testimonies can have the greatest possible impact. Why is that? Because your life lived out in front of your oikos demonstrates your faith. Whether you want it to or not, whether you think it does or not. We naturally have more quality opportunities to share with the people we are with most often. And those closest to us see the real values of our lives. We have this book out there uh, on our resource table. And I encourage you to buy one of them today. It's book 8 to 15. In the book, uh, Tom Mercer gives this illustration. He said, imagine you have the opportunity to share the gospel with the world. Like the entire world. That somehow, through technology, that you're going to present the gospel message to the entire world There's going to be translators or devices or some way. And so you, the best you know how, articulate the gospel to billions of people. They get to hear it. The only ones that are really going to know if you're telling the truth are those people who actually, the 8 to 15 people that actually live with you. That's your world. That's your oikos. And although that flexes a little time and maybe you have 20 or 30, the people that you do life with or influence over, But that's how the early church did it. Very, very rarely do we see anybody in these local churches putting sandwich boards on, standing on top of picnic tables, declaring the gospel to anyone. No, their life was just so radically changed that out of the overflow of their life, in their conversation, seasoned with salt, demonstrating the gospel, and they declared the gospel. They just spoke the good news of Jesus. This doesn't have to be so complicated, church. We don't have to go through the four spiritual laws or the Romans road. You know what you do? You just brag on Jesus. That's really as simple as it is. Hey, can I tell you what God's done in my life lately? At the, in the, in the break room at work, hey, can I just tell you what God's done in my marriage lately? Hey, can I tell you where I have just fallen flat on my face when I try to earn it and the pride that wells up in me and that God in his kindness leads me to Repentance. That's what it says in Peter, right? Be ready to give an account for the hope that's within you. In that context, mostly through suffering. Because when you have joy in suffering, there is no greater apologetic for this world to see. When we look at the early church, this is where we see households or small relational networks of people coming to Christ. Evangelism was just natural. There was no strategy of the local church. At the overflow of their time with Jesus, their joy and peace was infectious. Third thing I want you to see here is that their communities and cultures were changed. Their communities and cultures were changed. What did it say in that Acts 16 uh, verse we read, we read a moment ago that These people who have turned the world upside down are here. You can read a few chapters later when uh, Paul goes into the city of Ephesus and causes this incredible riot because people weren't buying the idols, the man-made idols or images of Artemis, their great god anymore. And to such an extent, the entire culture of the church at Ephesus changed. I can't wait till we get that and really unpack what's going on, but 
This temple to Artemis in Ephesians, one of seven wonders of the world. It was the greatest thing. It was the biggest thing, bigger than the Colosseum in Rome. People could see it for hundreds of miles away. And you know what you'll hear when you go to Ephesus today? You won't hear anything about the goddess of Artemis. You'll hear about the Christian church who brought the gospel. As Jesus said, it came in like a seed. The kingdom of God like a seed planted in the ground. That's what you'll hear. How this great revival changed the entire course of history in the city of Ephesus. Because a few of these people were serious enough to believe Jesus at his word and reorient their their entire lives to follow him. Communities and cultures were changed for the better. Now as Christians, we have this dual responsibility. Augustine coined the phrase in the 4th century, this uh, idea of the city of God, maybe you've heard of it. Augustine distinguished between the eternal city of God, the family of God maybe, as, as we would refer to it, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. We're part of the eternal city of God. And yet we still live in the city of man. Two rival cities shaped by opposing loves and working toward different ends. Nevertheless, there's this dual divine command to love God and to love your neighbor. It requires that we work for the common good of the city of man while also giving glory to God with everything that we do. So we proclaim the gospel to our neighbors that they might become our brothers. And even if they don't, we love them just the same. There's a dual responsibility. There's a cautionary warning I think I want to give us from gospel identity. I don't want us to get caught in this train of a social gospel. Now the pursuit of justice is important. It's not extra credit for just the super committed. It's core of what it means to follow Jesus. We have no right to call ourselves disciples if we turn a deaf ear to the suffering and injustices that surround us. The Bible says that mercy, right, is more important than sacrifice. We're required to act and justly and love mercy. And those of us who ignore the cries of the poor will one day cry out ourselves and not be answered. Yet as important as mercy and justice may be, they aren't the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. It's always been the main thing. And fortunately, in some of our circles, there's been this subtle shift away from the main thing where justice has replaced Jesus as the new goal. First priority is no longer bringing Jesus to a lost world. It's bringing mercy and justice to a suffering and disadvantaged world. In that case, Jesus has become an optional add-on, and that is a grave mistake. The shift from offering mercy and justice in the name of Jesus to offering mercy and justice without mentioning his name may seem subtle. After all, we're still doing the things that he's called us to do, but this subtle shift has huge consequences because people are fed, but their eternities aren't changed. The moment Jesus becomes optional, the Great Commission has been redefined by us. Jesus didn't command us to go into all the world offering mercy and fighting for justice. He commanded us to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Granted, disciples who obey everything Jesus commanded will champion mercy and justice. Absolutely, they will. They will live sacrificial lives in order to accomplish it. But it starts with following Jesus. As a disruptive force, as we... Love God and love others. The grace of Jesus that transformed us begins to be a disruptive force in the city and culture in which we live. 
Don't we see this in the life of Jesus? He came into a Hebrew world ruled by the Romans and given cultural and religious expression by the Pharisees, and he just turned it upside down. He disrupted the legal requirements created by the religious leaders, not healing on the Sabbath or working on the Sabbath. He disrupted the definition of success by saying the first shall be last and last first. He disrupted the social constructs of the day by giving attention to care for women and children, even including them in his core group of followers. He disrupted the ethical standards by loving and respecting those deemed unlovable and less than. How many times does someone come to him who has leprosy or is blind and has been cast out of society and Jesus touches them and restores them, not just their physical sight or their their physical well-being, but their souls. Jesus often went to the wrong tribe. He was a disruptive force. And again, what is that great disruptor? It's the grace of God. If you read church history, you'll see this. As Christians converted in cities, it affected culture. We actually have the governor of Bithynia writing Caesar and saying, what are we going to do with these Christians? They've changed the way that the market works. They've changed the way that orphan care works. They've changed the way that healing works. They've changed everything. What are we going to do with them? And his answer to him was just kill them. And that in work, culture continued to change. I say all that to say that the gospel doesn't just have private implications, but public ones. Public implications. And we as a church are banding together so that we would work together to right the injustices that are all around us. You see this with Paul and Silas coming into Thessalonica, the quality of their life and the intensity of their discipleship. And the fruit of the life of Jesus was manifested in their local community in such a way that it changed the world. They let the power of their changed lives confront and push out the darkness of their day. I got a few quick points of application for us. One is a reminder that the gospel is subversive. I love in verse eight again that it says that like word of your testimony has gone forth everywhere. Can you imagine meeting someone in a different city in a different state and saying, oh, oh, you're from that church covenant. I've heard about you. Not the size of your building or the people that show up, but that, but, but that our hearts and lives are so radically changed that we're leveraging everything for the kingdom of God. That it would radically change the landscape of culture in which we've been planted. There's incredible power in the message of the gospel. I think I have this on the screen. The power is in the good news of Jesus and not your presentation of it. No more can we give Satan that foothold that I don't really know exactly what to say or how to say it and I'm afraid the questions that might be asked. Listen, the power is not in, in, in your persuasive words. The power is in the good news of Jesus. It's the grace of Jesus that is the disrupting force. Next application point is the gospel requires boldness. Look over in chapter 2, verse 2. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. Boldness. You'd think as you read through the book of Acts that Paul eventually would just, would just stop. Every city he goes in, he gets beat up. You ever read that long list of all the things that he went through? Been shipwrecked, shipwrecked, uh, shipwrecked at sea for days and days and beaten within an inch of my life and flogged and stoned. It's this long list. And yet he's just the energizer bunny. He's like, but you know what they did in Philippi? That's okay. We're going to Thessalonica and we're going to bring the gospel to you. And he says this as a way to encourage this little church that it, you're going to face difficulty. You're going to be shot down. There's going to be persecution. But the church has got to rise past that. We can't live for the comfort of our own selves. No, we, this is the message of the gospel of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us so that through us that it would be a channel to the watching world. When you make exclusive claims that there's no other name under heaven by which you much, must be saved, you should expect opposition, especially in our world today. But the fear of man was seen nowhere in Paul's life. Look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. I don't think I have this on there either. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, I love this, not to please man, but to please God. The fear of man was nowhere in Paul's life. It just wasn't there. He's living so that the gospel of God would advance in the world into the crevices of brokenness, into the darkest places. It's almost like Paul is eager, like, oh, there's brokenness over there. Oh, I'm going to face persecution over there. Let me in there. I just can't wait. Again, in this uh, passage in, uh, in Ephesus, there's this huge riot going on. And there's 10,000 people that are gathered outside this hall of Tyrannus. And they're shouting, great is the God of Artemis. And Paul is like being held back. He's like, wait, I get to stand on the stage and preach to 12,000 people at once? Let me in there. So eager to bring the gospel to these people. The kingdom of God advances in the world when people see broken places and they don't shrink back in fear, but they press forward with the gospel. Where are those places in our city where there are strongholds of darkness and oppression? Where are they? Me and some of my friends tonight are going to go serve downtown at the hub. And as much as we're giving a free meal, it's, it's a lesson for me every time we show up that this is not about me. Some strongholds of oppression and darkness. But you don't have to go to the homeless to find that. That's in your neighborhood. The gods of power and materialism and status. Th those idols that we worship in the suburbs. God has sent us there to be gospel light. Ask us this last question. What, is, what would it look like for, for there to be a great disturbance in Shreveport Bossier? This word's used a few times in Acts, in Acts 14, again in Acts 19. There was no little disturbance because of the people that followed the way. 
the local church living in the way of Jesus is an extraordinary force in our city. Let me say that again. The local church living in the way of Jesus, not just believing the teachings of Jesus, divorced from how he lived, but the local church living in the way of Jesus is an extraordinary force in our city. You've probably heard this illustration about David Platt. He was pastor of a church, uh, church of Brook Hills in Birmingham. You've heard, you've heard this? He says in an interview in CNN, let me read the interview for you. One day, the lady asked him, you know, what's, tell me the story about what's going on in your church with uh, adoption and orphan care. He says, one day I called up the Department of Human Resources in Shelby County, Alabama, where our church is located, and I asked, how many families would you need in order to take care of all the foster and adoption needs that we have in our county? The woman I asked laughed at me. I said, no, really. If a miracle were to take place, how many families would be sufficient to cover all the different needs that you have in our entire county? How could we shut your office down, basically? There would be no need for you anymore. She said, man, I I guess if a miracle were to happen, we would need 150 families. So he went to his church the next week, a very large church. He says, when I shared this conversation with our church, we had over 160 families signed up to help with foster care and adoption. We didn't want even one child in our county to be without a loving home. And he goes on to say, it's not the way of the American dream. It doesn't add to our comfort, prosperity, or ease. But we are discovering the incredible joy of sacrificial love for others. And along the way, we're learning more about the inexpressible wonder of God's sacrificial love for us. That's what it means to change the culture of our city. That we could live in for ourselves. That we're not looking for comfort or ease behind the next corner. Like we'll have that one day in heaven. We don't have heaven here yet. That's coming. The kingdom of God is coming and it's working. And it's here partially but not fully. Where are the dark places and the strongholds of darkness and oppression in our city that God has sent you to? What's he stirring in your heart? Is it teenage moms? Is it parents that are living for the wrong thing? What wakes you up at night, keeps you up at night with just this burden? I think God's speaking to you. This is the way of Jesus. Anywhere that there's something that doesn't line up with the will of God, Jesus gets in there and brings this great disturbance. And when enough people take this seriously, it will be said, man, what is happening in that church? What is happening in that city? Maybe that God would bring a great revival here to Bozier City, that he would flex his supernatural muscles in such a way that even in the song that we sang, that the, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit would blow through this place and radically change us from being inward focused to outward focused. From building bigger barns to having open hands. Lives changed, marriages restored, addictions broken, orphans adopted, the discarded loved, and on and on we could go. 
What's happening in that city? Oh, nothing crazy. It's just the people of God believing him at his word and following Jesus. Church, what's, what's God asking you to do? And what step of faith is he asking you to take? And I'm going to let those questions kind of sit with us for a minute. We're going to close with communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion. You do need to be a member of God's church. Having trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and following him in obedience. If that's you, I invite you to partake in a minute with us. It's this common meal amongst the church. And I pray even as you take it, the prayer of your heart is, God, where are you sending me? For most of us, it won't mean that we move anywhere. It means we just see through a different, different lens. Pray with me, God. As we wrestle with this question of what you're calling me to do or what step of faith you're asking me to take, Holy Spirit, would you lead us in this moment? You know our thoughts before we think them. You know the attitudes of our heart even now. Those of us that are already putting up defenses, mounting a pile high of, of, of why we're not going to follow you. I don't have the money or I don't, I don't have the clarity or this is not the right timing. Lord, would, would your spirit address those things? Would we be so overwhelmed with the supremacy of Christ in our lives? And would our hearts be so burdened for those that don't know you? That it would radically change our lives. That we wouldn't be a people that just come in here to play church but we would leverage everything for the sake of the gospel. Father, I pray for those in this room that don't know you, that today that they would take a step of faith and become part of your family. That they would trust you as Lord and Savior. That they would see their lives upended just as this young church did in Thessalonians. So, Father, this time is yours. Do with us as you want. I pray over the response time of our service, Lord, that you would move mightily in our hearts, that we would remember who you are for us, our advocate before the Father. Thank you for your death on the cross, Jesus, and what it means for us. And the Holy Spirit, would you lead us? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You come when you're ready. Feel free to take as much time as you need. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone.